five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. On this week's episode of The Space Economy, my guest is Marcia Smith, the founder of Space Policy Online. Marcia's career includes being the executive director of the U.S. National Commission on Space, a senior level specialist in aerospace and telecommunications policy at the Congressional Research Service, and a director of the Space Studies Board at the National Research Council. While Marsha likes to be referred to as a space policy analyst and will downplay her career, she is an expert in space policy, and I'm thrilled to have her on the show as this week we discuss the election and its effect on the space program. But first, a word from one of our sponsors, MDA. Serving the world from its Canadian home and global offices, MDA is an international space mission partner and a robotics satellite systems and geo-intelligence pioneer with 50 years of experience developing custom technology solutions to some of the world's biggest challenges. Today, they are leading the charge towards viable moon colonies, enhanced Earth observation, communication in a hyper-connected world, and more. To learn more, visit mda.space. That's mda.space. Okay, on to the show. Welcome, Marsha, to the Space Economy Podcast. Thanks so much for inviting me. Um, today, we are going to see if we can answer some questions and have some fun doing it uh, about the future of NASA uh, based on the election results, which are still in flux in uh, to some extent. Um, so we'll get right into uh, some of the uh, I suppose, interesting questions. Um, Joe Biden is the president-elect, although we still need to get the um, results certified, uh, which will be in December. Uh, and then, of course, the uh, Senate or uh, Congress has to uh, approve that. Uh, but that's generally a foregone conclusion, I think, when after it gets certified. But anyway... Uh, and the Electoral College does its thing. Um, at the moment, President Trump has not conceded. But more importantly, for President-elect Biden's transition team, uh, they're being denied access to government resources to move forward. Now, with respect to the transition and space, does this matter? It does matter if it continues the uh, incoming team needs some time to get into the agencies. This is government-wide, it's not just NASA, to basically find out what's going on. You know, what are the key issues? What do we need to know about on January 20th when we walk in the door so that there can be a smooth transition? So it is important that an incoming president have that opportunity and it's set up so that they have about two months. So if this gets delayed until the electoral college, which I think meets on December 14th, then it's just going to be a shorter period of time that they have to get the information they need to ensure that NASA and all the other government programs can keep marching forward without big disruptions. So it does matter in terms of timing. But, you know, it's been done before. Uh, Vice President Gore, when uh, he, he uh, and uh, who became George W. Bush president, uh, their race was not decided until December 12th. 
That's right. So it and, has happened, and, and there is a way to do it, but uh, it just slows things down. Now, I think one of the advantages this time around for NASA is that um, the transition team is actually organized, whereas when President Trump uh, came into power, um, it took some time for the transition teams to, to, to get rolling just because it didn't seem they were as prepared. Um, but uh, as uh, President-elect Biden has served as the vice president uh, and uh, in the White House for eight years, uh, he certainly does, ha- and of course in the Senate for I don't know how many years now, uh, he, has, he has a lot of experience. Now, the transition team, as we've now uh, found out, uh, has had... Um, all sorts of agency review teams set up. And there's one for NASA. Uh, The one for NASA is being led by Ellen Stofan, who is the director of the National Air and Space Museum. She's a volunteer, as are all the members of the agency review team for NASA. Uh, But previously, she worked at NASA uh, as a chief scientist. So, uh, and she's leading a seven-member review team of NASA. Can we read anything into Stofan leading the team and the composition of the team? Well, I think she's a splendid choice. Uh, she has the best job in the world, I think, as director of the Air and Space Museum, which is undergoing this huge seven-year-long renovation at the moment. So, you know, it's really something for her to be willing to take her time to lead this transition activity. But she certainly knows NASA, uh, having served as a chief scientist, which is a very high-level position in the agency, and she was a planetary scientist who dealt with NASA, you know, from outside in the academic community dealing with NASA. So she knows it as an outsider and as an insider. And she's incredibly well respected. And she's a woman, which is a good thing. And she's really into STEM education and bringing in diversity and a lot of these other themes that we've been hearing for quite some time, uh, not just in the Obama administration, but also in the Trump administration, and especially from Jim Bridenstine. So I think that she sort of conveys that, and she's just top-notch. I, I can't think of a better choice. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Uh, NASA's uh, agency review team's in good hands. Now, we'll get back to some of the uh, policy stuff uh, in just a bit. But If I uh, can just add one point, by the way. Sure. Alid Abdelladi, who's also on the team, is another former chief scientist. Ah, He's okay. He's a science go. expert. In fact, there are a lot of scientists on that team, and some of them are quite young. There's a woman there from Georgia Tech whom I don't know, but she's a postdoc. So they have age diversity on there as well. So they really have done a job. They've reached out to a very diverse, inclusive team of scientists and engineers who really know how everything works. So uh, it's across the board. Ellen's a great leader, but the whole team, I think, is top-notch. Yeah, and I'll say that I think you were referring to Shannon Valley from yes. Georgia Institute of Technology. Mm-hmm. And I'll also point out that uh, uh, Pam Melroy, former astronaut, is also mm-hmm. on, on the team. Yes, exactly. Um, so, so they so, have the engineering side as well as the science side. Yes, And the human very, space flight side as well as the robotic side. As, as you know, when it comes to uh, getting programs moving and getting programs funded, um, you know, you have to go through uh, Congress, the House, and the Senate. Uh, the House looks like it's going to stay in Democratic hands. Uh, the Senate, though, is very much uh, up in the air. So at the moment, uh, last check this morning, we have the 50 Republicans elected, 48 Democrats uh, uh, elected. 
we have two runoffs coming up on January the 5th, both in Georgia, um, because that's the way the, the, the law works in Georgia, um, because neither of the candidates that were in the lead uh, received 50% of the vote. So the Democrats have to win both seats to control the Senate with Vice President-elect Harris getting the tie-breaking vote. So going into the election, it seemed unlikely that both Georgia seats would go to the Democrats. At least that's what I've heard. Um, do you think that's still the case? Or has the election changed oh, the dynamics? I, I'm not an expert on Georgia politics. I think a, a lot of people have been surprised at how well Biden did in Georgia. And that last I checked, he was still leading, not by a lot, but he was still leading a bit. So I think that uh, everyone's a bit surprised at what's going on down in Georgia. So I don't dare guess, but you can look at the outcome. So what's going to happen? We'll just take the two together at the moment. So they both go to the Republicans. So then the Republicans are control 52-48. In control, very slim margin. Democrats get them 50-50 with the vice president having to pass uh, to be the tie vote. It means that whatever's going to happen in the Senate is going to be very challenging. There's going to be, it's hard to imagine more gridlock than there is, but it's going to be gridlock. So in terms of actually getting the nation's business done, it's going to be a hard slog, no matter how those races turn out. But of course, if the Republicans keep control, you know, that's going to give them quite a voice because the House will be in Democratic hands, presumably the White House will be in Democratic hands. So it still gives them a, a lot of ability to have a lot of impact on what gets done to block the Biden agenda. So it, it certainly makes a huge difference as to which party controls the Senate. But in terms of you know a space program and how much money is they going to get, what kind of policy bills might get passed, you know, it's going to be a challenge to get anything passed. Okay, before we move on, uh, we need to hear from our other sponsor today, which is the Satellite Canada Innovation Network. From November 16th to November 18th, the Canadian space industry invites you to the online Canada Pavilion at Ascend 2020, one of the biggest space events of the year. Through its programs for startups, small and medium-sized enterprises, and multinational corporations, Canada is the place to accelerate commercial space. The Canadian Pavilion welcomes any questions about doing business in Canada. Stop by our live chat room and say hello at ascend.events. That website address again is ascend.events. The Canada Pavilion is a collaboration among the Government of Canada, the Canadian Space Society, and the Satellite Canada Innovation Network. Okay. Back to my interview with Marsha. All right. So, which then brings me to my next question, which is even harder to answer, which is if the Republicans hold on to the Senate, the Democrats hold the House of Representatives, and we have a Democrat in the White House, what does this mean for the Artemis program? What does this mean for SLS, the Space Launch System? We'll start with the Artemis program. I actually think uh, what has happened most recently of most direct impact on the space program is not the presidential elections or who controls the Senate. It's what came out of the Senate Appropriations Committee yesterday and how far they're willing to go to fund Artemis because they are huge space supporters. You know, 
Senator Shelby is chairman of the committee, so it's not as though they have any policy disagreements about this, but even they said, you know, really there's a limit to how much money we can put into this. And they complained uh, very bluntly that the uh, Trump administration had sent up a budget request that had proposed terminating programs that he knew were very important to Congress, like, you know, the Roman Space Telescope and the PACE or Science Program and the Education Programs. So the Senate committee was saying, you know, you sent us this budget, you knew we were going to have to add back in money for this, and they put it at $750 million. And so in addition to this 12% increase that NASA wanted for Artemis, the senators also were going to have to come up with $750 million that Trump didn't include in his budget request. And they sounded pretty irritated by that. And so they basically said, you know, we just don't have enough money to fund all of this. We're putting the money back in for the programs that you wanted to terminate. You knew that we were going to put it back in, and we did. But we're going to have to cut somewhere else. And, and the biggest cut came from the human landing systems. So the fact that the Senate only could give them a billion out of the $3.4 billion requested for HLS, the House has provided $628 million. Ordinarily in these things, they compromise in the middle, but sometimes they go for the higher end, sometimes the lower end. But anyway, we don't know how it's all going to work out in the end. And of course, this is all part of the whole compromise that has to happen for all 12 of the appropriations bills. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how Congress deals with all this in the lame duck session. But just in terms of NASA and Artemis, I think it's an indication that although from a policy standpoint, Congress supports returning to the moon and going on to Mars. But from an implementation standpoint, what time frame do you do that on? How much money can we give you, you know, over what number of years? I think that I think that's going to happen no matter who's in the White House. Because you know it's Congress that has the power of the purse. We're looking at a three trillion dollar deficit. And there just is a point at which you can't come up with a lot of money to fund a, a crash program to get back on the moon. And I'm not sure that that 2024 date was ever all that popular in Congress. You know, you just, you didn't see a lot of people waving the 2024 flag. There were a few of them, like from Alabama. But uh, apart from that, I think that there's been a lot of skepticism, both from a technical standpoint and a budgetary standpoint as to whether that was ever realistic. So I don't think it's that Artemis is a bad idea. It may get a different name in a Biden administration, but. The, the, the policy of returning the moon, going on to Mars, I think that's pretty well set as a policy. It's a matter of implementation. Right. Uh, I, I, based on everything I've heard and read uh, and listened to, that um, uh, that's what I'm uh, getting the sense of, too. Um, so the Artemis program is going to go ahead, um, but it's not going to get the funding uh, that uh, NASA had hoped for, uh, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstein, to try and meet that 2024 deadline. That, that deadline, deadline uh, like you said, uh, wasn't very popular to start with, um, but it doesn't seem like it's a realistic deadline at this point uh, anymore anyway. Um, so what that deadline becomes, who knows? Um, we will see going forward, but I don't think we'll see a landing by 2024. And I don't think, uh, now going on to the, the next topic, that it's going to be as big uh, an issue as, as it was uh, going into, uh, into the election. And that's because, in part, um, NASA Administrator uh, Jim Bridenstine 
said he was leaving. Um, he wanted the new administration to pick whoever they think uh, would be more appropriate. And he's leaving in part because, well, it's a political decision because uh, he's a Republican. He's a former congressman from Oklahoma. So he seemed to be doing a pretty good job at navigating Congress uh, and keeping NASA focused, although there were definitely some issues uh, on, on the science side. Uh, and there's a petition for him to try and, and uh, keep him in the, in the job. So um, should he stay? Um, let, let's start off with that. And then I've got a few follow on the go that should, should he stay, even though he's basically said he does he's not going to. Well, he's very well liked. And I think that people think he's doing a good job, especially in dealing with Congress on a bipartisan basis. But on the other hand, it's very rare for political appointees to stay. It's not unheard of, Dan Golden did. He was appointed by George H.W. Bush and stayed through all the Clinton years and then stayed with George W. Bush. But that really is the exception, not the rule. And and oftentimes uh, political appointees leave at the end of a first term. You know, Sean O'Keefe left after George W. Bush's first term and then Mike Griffin came in. So it is really not at all uncommon. And I think it, it mostly speaks to the fact that Bridenstein has such a following and he deserves a lot of credit for that. But, but ordinarily, political appointees leave with the person who appoints them. Right. Now, have you heard any names to replace them? Oh, yes. This is the favorite <laughs> pastime. Not just in Washington either, but throughout the country, you know, trying to guess who's going to take over what positions, whether it's Secretary of Defense or the head of NASA or whatever. And um, there's an old saying that the people who know aren't saying and the people who are saying don't know. So basically, it's just a fun exercise where you throw out the names of the people that you wish were going to get the job. So uh, I tend to steer a little bit clear of that and focus more on what are the characteristics of the person that you want in that job. That was going to be my next question. Do do you want a politician like Bridenstine? Do you want a scientist? Do you want an engineer? Do you want someone who's really closely tied with the president or closely tied with Congress, you know, what are the attributes that you're really looking for? And that depends on what you want the agency to do. Do you want the agency to boldly go out and try try to get us on the moon by 2024? Or do you want somebody who's going to stand back and say, really, we have to, you know, have more of a balanced program and not do anything crash? It's, it's that kind of thing, you know, what kind of a person do you want leading the agency? So, and I do hope it's a woman, by the way. It's okay. about time. <laughs> and, and I have lots of good candidates. Lots of good I, candidates. <laughs> and I've heard at least one woman's name come forward. So or at least not publicly, but privately. Uh, but like you, I'm not going to start mentioning names. Um, but in well, terms of character, we can't just we can't just throw out one because I'm I'm sure we all have her uh, in our thoughts at the moment, which is Kendra Horn. So get, Horn lost her re-election bid. She was chairing the House Space Subcommittee. She has a background in space. She worked at the Space Foundation before she decided to run for politics. And so that is one woman's name that I've been hearing quite a lot since last week when she lost her re-election bid. But there are lots of other good women out there as well. Right. Now, in talking about the characteristics, I think, can we read anything into the fact that um, President-elect Biden is going to have a strong climate uh, policy and and that uh, NASA has a role to play in that? Well, of course, uh, NASA already spends about $2 billion a year on Earth science activities, so it plays a big role in that already. And it might be that the 
a president-elect or a President Biden would be well-served by having someone like that as his uh, science advisor. So someone who's familiar with NASA and all that NASA can do, but also familiar more broadly with the climate change science community and with what's going on at NOAA and all that, as a science advisor, I think might help him move his climate change agenda forward even more effectively than having that as a NASA administrator. So I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm not going to name names, but in terms of characteristics, I don't think we're going to get a politician this time time around. I think we're going to get somebody who's got a, a background, a science and engineering background. So uh, not too much out on a limb there. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I'm writing this down. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, okay. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about... Um, uh, the House and Senate committees. Uh, you alluded to the um, uh, House uh, Committee on Science, Space, and Technology, of which uh, Kendra Horn was the uh, chairwoman. Uh, she lost her um, uh, her election bid, and of course, uh, you know, it was in red state Oklahoma. So I don't think. Too many people were surprised that she lost, but at the same time, she did lose. Um, so, uh, and everybody else uh, who was on that committee has won, with the exception of Mike Garcia, a Republican from California, who's in a race where the the it's like a couple hundred votes or less between him and his opponent. So we don't know how that's going to go. But in terms of, uh, and, and the, the chairperson will wind up being a, a majority member. So any idea as to who might uh, take over for uh, Kendra Horn? I really don't. Uh, these committee chairmanships and subcommittee chairmanships is a lot of musical chairs because, you know, somebody who might have seniority and would be the obvious choice might instead prefer to be on a different committee. Some of the people who are on the subcommittee that you would think of as being likely to want to take over the chair are on other committees and under the rules of the house, they can't be in a leadership position on two different committees at the same time. So I I think we're just gonna have to wait and see. And uh, you may recall that uh, Horn was freshman. So Mm -hmm. the, the, the science committee is considered what they call a B committee. It's not one of the top committees that people flock to unless you happen to be from a place where space is really important. So sometimes you don't really get all the people that you want. And if you can find a freshman who's knowledgeable and passionate and really wants to have it, you may choose a freshman. So there aren't gonna be very many freshmen this time, but uh, we're just gonna have to wait and see who wants the job and and who the democratic leadership wants to put in the job. Yeah, and I'll say someone who's pro space because those are the people who tend to serve on the science committee in the first place. Right, and to your point, uh, who makes up uh, members of this committee? You know, uh, Alabama, Florida, California, Texas, Colorado, uh, Virginia—all states that have strong space uh, infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So, because those right. are the people who want to be on the committee. Exactly, exactly. Now, looking at the uh, Senate Committee on Commerce, Science and Transportation, uh, we're not really seeing any changes uh, r- except for the um, Cory Gardner lost his seat from uh, Colorado uh, and uh, Ted Cruz is the, uh, the chairman. Um, if, the Sen- if the Republicans hold on to the Senate, I suppose Ted Cruz would stay on. 
Uh, again, just like in the House, it's all musical chairs. So Ted Cruz could keep that subcommittee if he wants it. He may want something else. He hasn't been all that active on the space. It's actually space and aviation, I think. He hasn't been all that active on the subcommittee of this past Congress. So I, I don't know if it's really a passion of his or if uh, Senator Wicker just wanted to have a stronger presence because he is the full committee chairman and he has done a space center in his state. So uh, I don't know how this is going to turn out. It's very hard to guess where all these positions are going to land at the end of the day. Yeah, and I should correct myself. It was the Subcommittee on Aviation and Space, which is part of the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation. Right. Um, and, and of course, of course we, have Mark, we have Mark Kelly coming in, a former astronaut from Arizona. And, and I think everyone has agreed that he won his race. I, I don't think that Martha McSally has conceded, however, but I, I do think that by and large... Uh, his race has been called. So we'll see how interested he's going to be in space. I mean, he'll be interested, of course. But there have been other uh, former astronauts who became senators, and some of them got very involved and some didn't because, of course, the whole point of being a senator is that you represent your constituents. So Bill Nelson, who wasn't a professional astronaut, he was a politician who flew into space when he was a member of the House of Representatives. He was very active in space because he was from Florida, which has a huge space footprint. But John Glenn, for all the years that he was in the Senate, he really didn't do a lot on NASA until pretty much the end of his political career. And Jack Schmidt, who uh, the Apollo 17 right. astronaut, he represented New Mexico, and he did focus on NASA a lot. And some people say that's why he lost his reelection race after his uh, six years in the Senate, because he was more focused on space than on his constituents. So it's, it's a balancing act that all these people have to make. And, and Mark Kelly, I'm sure when you look at what he's been uh, campaigning on, it's been on health care and the issues that are really important to Arizonans. So um, all right. now we come to an interesting topic, which is the National Space Council. Mm-hmm. So um, where what's going to happen to that? I mean, uh, until uh, the Trump administration, it had been pretty much... Uh, mothballed uh, for many years, uh, and and during the Trump administration, it was uh, very uh, visible uh, and had a lot of public meetings. Um, what do you think is going to happen with uh, the National Space Council? It's hard to say. When uh, Biden was vice president, he could have had a space council if he wanted one. He would have chaired it as vice president, but the Obama administration did not choose that mechanism. You know, they dealt with it through the Office of Science and Technology Policy and the National Security Council, you know, and, and, and they got uh, business done. So it's not as though you must have a space council, but I think that m- most people in the space community would argue that uh, this space council has been very effective. And I think it was just this perfect confluence of Scott Pace, who was top notch, who was willing to take on the job of executive secretary of the Space Council, a vice president, Mike Pence, who was really interested in it and really wanted to get stuff done, you know, and a NASA administrator who could work with them both. Because the last time there had been a Space Council back uh, with George H.W. Bush, there was a lot of conflict between the Space Council uh, that was headed most of the time by Mark Albrecht and uh, Dick Truly, who was the NASA administrator for most of that time, and they were just at loggerheads most of the time, and so that was a very dysfunctional relationship. So it's a very different experience this time around. I, I think, as I said, that most people think it's been very positive, and you could get another set of people like that, you know, a really effective executive secretary working with a very involved vice president. 
That's so critical. You've got to have a vice president who cares about space and wants to get stuff done and is willing to put their personal weight behind budget decisions and, you know, and twist a few arms in agencies when they're not really uh, cooperating. So it's key to have a vice president who's really interested and then a NASA administrator who was on the same page with all of them. So it's, it's not just you check a box, yes, we have a space council or not. It's who are the people involved. So if the election results stay the way they are, um, and I don't, I have to admit, I don't know too much about uh, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris's uh, stance on space. Is she interested in space at all? And she's from California. She is from California, but you know, I'm not aware of her having been involved really in anything space related uh, during her time in the Senate. And uh, it, it, what, what few space bills get passed in the Senate are usually done by unanimous consent, so you don't have a voting record behind it. So, but I, I'm just not aware that she's really done very much on space. But, you know, Pence didn't have a big record in space either. But when he got the job as chairman of the Space Council, he really liked it. I mean, he had a personal passion for it. But whether Harris has a personal passion or not, I, I simply don't know. All right, so we're going to end uh, on a with this question related to the budget. So, you know, budgets, um, if I remember correctly, we're, uh, we're still, I don't know what the exact date is, but we've got a continuing resolution until December 11th, 11th continuing resolution until December 11th. Um, do you see <laughs> any deal happening between now and then? Well, Mitch McConnell announced after he won his re-election race that, uh, last week that he wanted to get all the appropriations bills done. And what they did, and, and I'm just not aware of this having happened in the past, at least not so quickly, is they just put out the bills yesterday. There's no subcommittee markup, no full committee markup, no Senate vote. It's basically, here they are, and they're going to negotiations with the House. So that certainly saves a lot of time. So the House has passed 10 of the bills. There's still two that they hadn't gotten done. But if they want to get them done and can reach agreement, then yes, there's enough time between now and December 11th. But I think there's a lot of friction going on right now, a lot of uncertainty, and whether the willingness is there to cooperate or not is really questionable. And so I would not put any bets on them being able to get it done by December 11th. But I really don't have any concern about a government shutdown. Considering the situation here with COVID and unemployment and all that, I don't think anybody wants a shutdown. So the worst that would happen is that they push it out into the next Congress. Uh, often they would do that if there was gonna be a change in party control of either the House or the Senate, and you just let the next Congress deal with it. But it looks as though we're probably going to have the same political alignments as we do now with the House being in Democratic hands with fewer people, fewer Democrats, and, and the Senate uh, also with maybe one, maybe more, maybe one fewer Republican. So I'm not sure that pushing it off in January is going to solve any problems. So it, I, maybe it's a 50-50 chance they get it done, but you know, for NASA, it's still not gonna be enough to proceed on the schedule they were planning for Artemis. So they're gonna have to figure out what they wanna do. And I think that's one of the first things that uh, yes, someone's gonna have to deal with on January 20th. And the, the, I think the, the biggest issue was the human landing system, wasn't it? Right, and so these contracts that the three companies have are through February. 
So NASA was going to make a decision in February as to which one or two of three were going to proceed in order to get there by 2024, 2025. So, you know, if, if Biden is coming in and he's going to eliminate the 2024 deadline, then that really gives everybody a little bit of breathing room. But as I've been pointing out to others, you know, if the companies really want to get it done, you've got some really rich mega billionaires in there and they could come up with the money that Congress did not provide. So, you know, if SpaceX wants to put in its own money to compensate for what the government's not going to be able to put in or if Jeff Bezos does, it's not as though the world has to give up on 2024. It's just a program that relies heavily on U.S. tax dollars is probably not going to get done by 2024. There's still the technical hurdles. It's still a lot to try and get something like that built and tested by 2024. But you have two remarkable people who are incredibly wealthy and have their own visions of a future of space. And uh, maybe it's time for them to step up. So I'm going to add a political note to that and say that uh, the Democrats don't want the 2024 date because then you're going to have the uh, legacy of a Republican president in, 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 in President Trump saying, see, I said I put a date 2024 and it happened. I don't think they want that. Well, I don't think that bothered Richard Nixon when uh, we landed on the moon during his presidency, even though it was JFK who started it. I don't think that bothered him a bit. He, he was still the one greeting the astronauts when they landed. Yes. Now, I would add, though, when you talk about uh, rich business uh, people, um, you know, uh, SpaceX is investing a lot of money in Starlink right now. I, and, and, and Elon Musk is not as wealthy as Jeff Bezos. And I think uh, SpaceX has its hands full with what they're doing right now. Uh, and, you know, they're spending a lot of money on Starlink and they're not making any money. Um, and then Jeff Bezos, as we've heard, um, you know, this is more than just a, a business decision to him. This is, you know, it's a passion. It's he, he thinks it's important for humanity that, that we go out there. Um, so you're right. Uh, there is a possibility that a company like uh, Blue Origin uh, might uh, put in more of its own resources uh, to make something like this happen. Well, and Musk is proceeding apace with Starship. You know, everybody knows that he's a little uh, uh, off on his timelines for when he's going to get things done. And he has said he's going to have a lot of tests, uncrewed tests, before he's going to try putting anybody on the moon. But he has a very optimistic schedule for when he's going to have Starship launching, and they're getting ready to do this this hop, this 15-kilometer hop sometime soon. So, you know, I, I, I thought I heard that he was now the third richest man in the world. Maybe I misheard that. You know what? You may be right on that. Uh, Tesla has been doing extremely well from exactly. a stock perspective. And SpaceX um, is doing very well, even if Starlink isn't. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I'm just saying, you know, Starlink is just bleeding cash uh, because they haven't returned. They haven't turned uh, the 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 uh, the investment into revenue yet. Uh, that's coming up soon. Um, you know, they started beta testing in the U.S. last month. They're starting beta testing here in Canada, maybe by the end of the month into uh, next month, um, because they finally got approval uh, a week and a half ago uh, to go ahead with that. So, um, yeah, um, you're right. Uh, he has made money through Tesla, but uh, 
Um, I, I still think that Bezos has more resources and uh, not as occupied as, as Elon uh, is at the moment. All right. Well, they, 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 they could compensate for what the government can't put in if they want to. If they want to. And they, they have shown in the past that they're willing to spend some of their resources. All right. So we're going to leave it at that. I think that was a great conversation. Um, it's going to be fascinating to see how this uh, plays out over the, the next month. And mm-hmm. as always, over going forward, it's, it's always fascinating. And uh, But I think you're right. Uh, going back to one central point that, um, you know, the Artemis program will go forward. It may not be the same timeline, but it or is going to go forward. Or the, or the name. name. Or but the, the name. policy, this constancy of purpose that everybody talks about, I think that that is pretty well established. Everybody right. agrees on constancy of purpose. Okay. We'll leave it at that. Thank you, Marsha. All righty. Thanks for inviting me. It was fun. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Your feedback is very much appreciated, and you can contact us at our new Twitter channel, at The Economy Space. Yes, I know, we couldn't get at the space economy. So while the account is called the space economy, the Twitter account handle is at the economy space. As always, if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash spaceq.